him his greatest blessing. In other words, his loss became his gain, and he found real joy even in the midst of his sorrow. Uh, I like how Eugene Peterson, uh, in his paraphrase, the message, you know, as far as Bibles go, there's all kinds of Bibles that you can buy these days, but there's two types of Bible. There are those that are translations, where the authors have gone back to some texts and they've, uh, they've, they've, they've uh, uh, rephrased, if you like, the scriptures. But then there's paraphrases, where it's the author's own interpretation of, of scripture, and that's what the message is by Eugene Peterson. But he puts it like this. He says, you're blessed when you feel you've lost what's most dear to you because only then can you embrace the one who is dearest to you. And of course, that's Jesus himself. But of all the, all the Beatitudes, and we have a few more to look at over the coming, uh, coming weeks, this one is maybe the most puzzling. How can being sad make us blessed or make us happy or, or joyful? Uh, when can grief ever be good? What does it mean to find joy in the midst of sorrow? Well, John Stott, a great pastor and preacher and, and, and writer, uh, wrote, he said, The Sermon on the Mount is probably the best known part of the teaching of Jesus, although arguably, he said, it's the least understood and certainly it's the least obeyed. But we're going to do our best tonight for the next little while to explore this, this, uh, this characteristic of, of being a disciple that Jesus was teaching his disciples. It is counterintuitive. It seems the opposite of what it wants to say. And, and so we're going to look at it for, for a few moments tonight. Uh, this text is literally no laughing matter, really. Blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted. But you know, I can't help but think that when Jesus said that on the mountainside to his disciples, and remember he was surrounded by a lot of other people who were kind of listening in on this teaching to his disciples, I can't help but think that someone in the crowd overheard what Jesus said to the disciples and, and laughed out loud, uh, assuming that Jesus was joking. You know, when he said, blessed are those that mourn. You know, it's a happy state to be in because you'll be comforted. In fact, if you go into Luke's gospel and Luke's account of the same, uh, same scenario, we have what may, what may have been Jesus' response to that person's laughter because he said in Luke chapter 6, verse 25, Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. And I'm sure when Jesus said that, beginning with the person who now realized that he put his foot in his mouth by maybe laughing at this, that everyone realized that what Jesus said wasn't something to laugh at, it hit them that they had heard him right, and he actually said that people who mourn are blessed. People who mourn are happy people. So what's, what does that, all that mean? How can we unpack what Jesus was trying to teach here? Well, you know, in, in our world, call it the Western culture if you like, the idea of pursuing happiness has become, if you like, the final authority in how we view life, uh, as well as the determining factor that we make uh, many of our choices by. Do our choices make us happy? Our, our culture increasingly seems, us, uh, seems to want us to separate our choices in life from any sense of morality. And when we're encouraged to make decisions based on what feels good, what makes us happy. And this has spawned a, a whole lot of other ideas, one of which is the idea that the supreme virtue 
and, and you know it's true today, the supreme virtue that people hold up is tolerance. Because that says, you know, we must let people pursue their own happiness in whatever way they want to, because that's their right. If some man thinks he's a woman, well, he's a right to do that. And we should let him be happy with that. And all sorts of other stuff. I'll not get into that tonight. But our world embraces joy and happiness, but not mourning and sorrow. And it's, you know, it's often reflected in a lot of popular songs. I want to test your, your memories with a couple of lyrics here. I'm going to, uh, there's the first part. Now, don't put up the second part yet, uh, Stuart. What's the use in worrying? It never was worthwhile. So pack up your troubles in your old kit bag and... Yes, you know that. Yeah, smile, smile, smile. Be happy, you know, in other words. Here's another one familiar to you. Two words. Got them, Stuart? Don't worry. Be happy. That's right. You see how the culture influences us? Now, the young people here, the, the boys and girls here, might know this one, so let the boys and girls answer this one. Um, and th these are words from Disney's The Lion King. No worries for the rest of your days. It's a problem-free philosophy... What is it, Daniel? Huna Matata, right? Who knows what that means? I don't know. It's just whatever you, whatever you like, go for it. Hakuna Matata, that's right. These songs and, and, and a whole lot of other songs in the popular culture reflect the mindset of the culture. Uh, and this, this kind of free, unregulated pursuit of happiness informs the way we, we think in many areas of life, including marriage, for example, it's become commonplace in, in marriages, even Christian marriages that struggle, um, influenced by this sort of aspect of our culture, to hear one spouse say to another, I, I think I want out of this marriage. I'm not just happy anymore. That becomes the standard. Pursuit of happiness. In fact, I'm just remembering in the, in the American um, Constitution, they have a statement that everyone has the right to pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of Happiness. They've even put it in their constitution in America. It's no wonder they're in the trouble that they're in um, when, 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 they're, when they're living by that sort of mantra. But, it, but it's, 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 it's a deeply ingrained, I think, in all of us. And we're driven to seek happiness at all and sometimes at great cost to us personally and socially, spiritually and emotionally and economically, any which way you can think of. Uh, and, and I suppose you've noticed that, you know, our culture pursues happiness through entertainment and, and through pleasure. Uh, and the mantra seems to be today, blessed are those who laugh their way through life. We have a tendency to avoid and to want to avoid problems and to run from difficulties. Uh, things are, you know, bad enough, I suppose, as they are without going to look for trouble anyway. But uh, we, we say, you know, don't mourn, don't worry, be happy. Hakuna Matata, you know. And that's one reason why this beatitude is, is, is a little bit hard for us to, to grasp because to mourn, to have a reason to be sorrowful to us isn't a particular virtue. And we have to admit that we sometimes feel like Proverbs 14 and 13 that says, even in laughter, the heart may ache and joy may end in grief. Now, I discovered that uh, there are nine different Greek words used in the New Testament to speak uh, of mourning or grief. And in one of the most uh, profound uh, texts in, in the Bible, Jesus uses the strongest uh, Greek uh, verb uh, in, in, in this verse, blessed are those that mourn, for they will be comforted. And the very fact that there are nine in the Greek language 
you know, is a pretty good indication that, you know, that it's, it's an important thing. Uh, it's an important thing to, to try and understand. In fact, the whole of man's history, when you think about it, uh, has been a story of tears and a story of sorrows. And God knows we've had a lot of that. But I want to tell you tonight that we haven't had anything like what's yet to come. Listen to Jesus in Matthew 24. He says, Jesus answered a question and he said to them, he said, take heed that no man deceive you for many shall come in my name saying, I am Christ and shall deceive many. And you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. Don't be troubled for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There'll be famines and earthquakes in various places and so on. And if you know anything about Matthew chapter 24, you know that Jesus is talking about a time at the end of the age, and he follows it up in the very next verse by saying, all these are only the beginning of sorrows. The beginning of sorrows. And the history of man is the history of sorrow, a history of tears, a history of pain and grief, and we've only seen the beginning of it. We haven't seen anything yet, really, but what's coming down the road and as we've been learning, you know, God is much more concerned about our character than he is with our circumstances. And so first of all, we need to affirm an important truth that Jesus wants us to understand about mourning in general. And that's, uh, that's just the, the plain sorrow of life itself. He's not talking about complainers or moaners, but about those things we experience, we all experience with deep sorrow that causes our souls to ache and our hearts to break. That's what life is like a lot of times. And, and if you live long enough, you'll know about sorrow and you'll know about a breaking heart uh, over one thing or another. And Jesus is very compassionate towards those who sincerely mourn uh, over the loss of a loved one, for example, or sorrow over the experience of, of sadness and pain. He knows what such mourning feels like personally. He's deeply touched by our sorrows. He feels the pain we feel during times of mourning. If you've lost a loved one through death, and you still cry yourself to sleep at night, you can relate. You can relate to David, for example. When his son Absalom died in 2 Samuel 18, he said the king was shaken. He went up to his room over the gateway and he wept. And of course, we read about Abraham's wife Sarah dying, and we read in Genesis 23 that Abraham also came to mourn, it says, and to weep for her. Ecclesiastes and 7 and verses 2 to 4 is very interesting. It says, It's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, for death is the destiny of every man. And the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. And for some, the sorrow and the more, uh, uh, sorrows and, and mourning that you've gone or are going through may be very serious. It may be health issues that make you afraid of the future. While for others, maybe you've, you've experienced relationship ruptures uh, with a friend or a loved one and, and, and it's eaten your heart out. And all of us know what it's like to cry and to mourn and lament over the inevitable losses uh, of life. And your sorrow, of course, can be for 101 other reasons. You know what it is, but you can relate to the words of the psalmist in Psalm 6, verse 6. I'm worn out from groaning. All night long I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. Uh, and yet I believe that one thing Jesus is saying in this verse, in the Beatitudes, is that this kind of mourning is a good thing. God made us able to weep. 
He designed our emotional and physical systems to interact in such a way that we can, we can vent our fears and our anxieties by mourning and grief that leads us to cry. is, is therapeutic. It's good for us. Did you know that in Psalm 56, verse 8, we're told that God collects every tear that we shed? That's a beautiful thought, isn't it? Christianity is the only faith that allows you to be real. So when you're hurting, you know, you should let it out. And when you feel like crying, let the tears fall. Because God understands. He'll provide you with comfort. Isaiah 53 characterizes Jesus, of course, doesn't he? As a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And the hymn writer reminds us, what a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. And of course, in the secular world, if you like, doctors and psychologists say that crying releases a healing process in a person's life that enables us to accept the pain, to work our way through it, and to adjust to life again. They also say that when we don't mourn, when we hold pain and anxiety in, we actually poison our emotional system. I had occasion this week, I was talking with a, a victim of a crime uh, that had affected her deeply. Uh, I, I volunteer with a, an organization called Victim Support Northern Ireland on a Thursday, and uh, she had been the victim of a, of a particularly hurtful experience. And uh, I had occasion to say to her, no, to, to her you know, it's, it's okay to, to express how you feel. It's okay to let it out. In fact, it's good. Uh, and, and, and there's a little equation that I've sometimes used with people that says impression minus expression equals depression. You know, life impresses itself on us, the good and the bad. It, it just, you know, it does that. But if we have no way of expressing how life affects us, when the good things happen, we've no one to share the good things with. Or when bad things happen, no one to share how we're feeling about what's happened. And we keep it all inside. It will tend towards depression. Impression minus expression equals depression. And we can poison our emotional system when we don't allow ourselves to grieve. And in the Bible, we read that the heroes of the faith didn't make that mistake. They didn't avoid visible grief. They didn't hold it in. Instead, they mourned over the natural losses of life. And even Paul wept when he said farewell to his friends in the church at Ephesus. And they, they wept right along with him. And I can imagine that I'm going to feel the same sort of grief when I have to say goodbye in the days to come, whenever all this is sorted out and there's a new pastor that comes to Monahanelam. But in addition, mourning is not only physically and emotionally therapeutic, but mourning is also a great teacher. Through mourning, we learn things that we couldn't learn otherwise. And ironically, sorrow really, uh, it doesn't sound right, but sorrow really increases our appreciation of joy. People in the Middle East have a proverb that says, all sunshine makes life a desert. And of course, that's true. It's physically true. There's lots of deserts in the Middle East and lots of sunshine. And they should know better than anyone else that the land in which the sun always shines will soon become an arid place and nothing will be able to grow. And there are certain things which only sunshine and rain will produce. And in a similar way, there are certain experiences that only sorrow and mourning can generate. For instance, when we go through sorrowful, sorrowful times, we learn, uh, hopefully, how kind people are. You know, there's, there's, there's no more better example of that than, than at a wake. You know, at a wake, people are coming in their droves almost with sandwiches and with cakes and buns and, 
and, and helping out and, and at times like that. And, and the morning times of life show us how wonderful the good times really are and make us grateful for the blessings of life. The truth is that when, when things are going well, it's possible for us to live on the surface of things. But when sorrow comes, we begin to really understand the important things, the precious things, the deep things of life. And pain teaches us principles we could never learn from pleasure. I, I came across this little poem and said, I walked a mile with pleasure. She chatted all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. But I walked a mile with sorrow, and not a word she said. But oh, the things I learned when sorrow uh, walked with me. And, and it's true, isn't it? It's true. Sometimes you don't have to say anything. And, and especially when you go to, to a wake or to a funeral, uh, the most you can say is, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry for your trouble. Sorry for your trouble. So mourning can be a blessed thing because it often pushes us closer to God. And I can testify that God draws especially close to me in the tough times of life that I've experienced. And, and I'm sure many of you have experienced that as well. When your heart is breaking over something, uh, when we feel, uh, we can feel the comforting arms of our Heavenly Father around our shoulders and He comes to us through His Word. Because to those who are gripped by grief, it says in Psalm 34, God is close to the brokenhearted and save, saves those who are of a crushed spirit. And Hebrews 4 and 15 tells us that Jesus sympathizes with our weaknesses. So these verses proclaim the reassuring fact that God cares about our sorrows and our mourning. He draws close to us in those times and comforts us. So when you feel like crying, go on your knees and let the tears fall and run to your heavenly father the same way that you would have run to your earthly parents when you skinned your knee. Because there's a, a sense that, that to mourn is a very normal human way um, in which um, we can be blessed. And there's a time for that. Ecclesiastes 3 says there's a time to be born, a time to die, a time to laugh, and a time to cry. And suffering turns us towards the Lord uh, as nothing else can. Someone has said, You've, you never know if Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And when Jesus is all you have, then and only then will you discover that Jesus really is all you need. And there's a truth in that. To all our questions... God simply rep replies, I am that I am. Because the answer in our mourning and sorrow is a person, not an explanation. Someone may say, but that, that's not enough. I want a real answer. But let me tell you that if God himself is not enough for you, then no answer will ever satisfy you. What's the opposite of mourning? mourning? What do you think? Anyone want to suggest the opposite of mourning? Rejoicing, that's right, rejoicing. But Jesus doesn't say, blessed are those who mourn for they will rejoice. Jesus says they'll be comforted. And that means he's not promising that all of our pain and the, the sorrows of life will go away. He's saying that, that, that in this circumstance of mourning that we sometimes come into, comfort will be brought to bear. Uh, not necessarily that you'll escape the things for which you mourn, but that God in the midst of them will bring you his comfort. And here's another truth. Our sufferings also qualify us to minister to other people. Did you realize that? 2 Corinthians 1 and 4 tells us that God comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves received from God. 
And the word translated comfort here is the same word Jesus translated or used for comfort in the Beatitude. He uses our sufferings, our own sufferings, to comfort us so that when we're on top of things again, if you like, we can then minister to others in his name and comfort others as well. Because no one understands cancer like someone who's been through it. No one understands separation or divorce like the person who's been through it. No one knows the agony of losing a job like someone who's lost their job. And no one understands the pain of a miscarriage, for example, like a mother who's lost her child. And, you know, I'm encouraged to believe that there are people in this church who are superbly qualified to minister to others. Deeply hurt by the troubles of life in one way or another. But through it all, they've discovered that God is faithful And they can say with conviction, God will take care of and will comfort you, whoever it is, in your uh, sorrow and mourning, because I know because he took care of me. They earned their degree in the school of suffering and mourning. And so they're qualified to minister to others uh, who enrolled after they had graduated. If you want to put it like that. God comforts us in our times of mourning. But he doesn't want that comfort and compassion to stop with us. He wants to recycle it through us. He wants us to be a conduit of the comfort we've received to someone else who's in a similar need. And in one sense, this beatitude reminds us that the essence of Christianity is is caring and compassion. Blessed indeed. Applauded by God indeed as a person who cares so intensely for the suffering and the sorrows and the needs of others that they let that mourning be a prompt to, to help in some way. Christianity involves caring people. And as disciples, as his disciples, we should, we should nurture our social conscience. And yet I believe one of our problems is, is that we become desensitized to, to the problems of the world. We've seen so many bloated stomachs of starving children that we no longer are moved by the sight. We've become so sensitized to violence on TV in video games that kids play and in movies uh, that many could care less for human life. Insensitivity like this is a sin. It's wrong for us not to grieve for the sorrowful condition of others. And we're in danger of forfeiting the the comfort that God wants to give us and, 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 and through us when we allow our hearts to become hard towards hurting people. But having said all this, and while we should mourn for our various losses, and we know that God can comfort us through them. The primary emphasis of this beatitude is that you and I are to be sorrowful about our own sinfulness. This second beatitude follows on from the first beatitude. That's not a surprise to you. The first one was, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We looked at it last week. Because spiritual bankruptcy should always lead to spiritual brokenness. John Stott, another great teacher and preacher, said it's one thing to be spiritually poor and acknowledge it. It's another to grieve and to mourn over it. Confession is one thing, but contrition, contrition is another. And the message of this second beatitude builds on the first. It teaches us that a true disciple, a Christian, starts off not only realizing how desperately needy we are in the sight of God because of sin, but also beyond that to experiencing sensitivity and genuine sorrow over any sin that might overtake us in our journey with Jesus. 
David committed adultery and murder. But it wasn't until he saw his sins as an affront to God that he could be restored. He testifies to that in Psalm 51. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And of course in Luke chapter 15, the prodigal son experienced godly sorrow. When he finally looked at what he was doing and how he was living, he regretted ever leaving his father. And then he felt guilt and remorse as he tried to panhandle food from the pigs. And when he eventually recognized that he had sinned both against his heavenly father and his earthly father, he repented and he went home in search of restoration and forgiveness. And he was met with love and grace even before he could make it up the driveway. When we look at the cross and truly understand the great price that our sin cost our Savior, how can we feel anything else but about our sinning but grief and mourning and sorrow and even deep remorse? Mourning over our sin should not stop once we become Christians. Because even though we're forgiven, let's be honest, we don't stop sinning. We can't be comforted with a close relationship with a holy God unless we mourn over those times when we yield to temptations in thought, word, and deed. And so we should continue to grieve and mourn whenever we disobey God. Perhaps we don't take our sins seriously because we have it in our minds that Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago, and so the payment for, for our sins was, was done. It was a done deal. But if I'm a disciple of the Son of God, how can I be indifferent? How can I be insensitive or hard-hearted to the great price of my sin and sinning that resulted in so much of Jesus' suffering? And that's why the second beatitude must follow from the first. It's not enough to simply recognize in a kind of an intellectual way that we're bankrupt sinners before God. That's where we must start. But once we realize the poverty of our soul, we have to acknowledge and feel God's grief and sorrow for our sins. And the unbelieving world is very glad to embrace the sentimental idea that those who mourn uh, in a general sense will be comforted. But they're genera they generally, you know, they generally in, the, in the secular world, the unbelieving world, structured their lives around ignoring and avoiding the whole idea of mourning over sin. Like psychologists and self-help gurus teach us to feel good about ourselves and to consider, it, uh, consider feeling bad as something bad in itself. You know, a famous psychologist once said that all neurotic behavior in the end is an attempt to avoid pain. And the world seeks to escape from sorrow and pain, uh, the pain of sin in all sorts of desperate and harmful ways. It celebrates laughter. It scoffs at sorrow. Ecclesiastes 7 and 4 says, The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth, as I said earlier on. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying tonight as we kind of bring this to a close. Don't hear what I'm not saying. It's not that God is against laughter or against joy. Of course he's not. Far from it. He's the original creator of real joy and laughter. In fact, each of these Beatitudes begins with the exclamation of, of blessed or joyful are those. And, and they all show us how to achieve it. I, I don't mind being joyful because I'm forgiven. But listen, I can't fully enjoy that joy when I go on with unconfessed sin in my heart. Spiritual mourning is a matter not simply of words or actions, although they have to be involved. Spiritual mourning in the context of this beatitude is more to do with the condition of the disciple's heart before God. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. 
but worldly sorrow brings death. So let me ask you a question tonight. How seriously do you take it when you sin? And you know you sin. I may not know. I know I sin. How seriously do you take it when you sin? Do you laugh at it? Do you let it pass by? Do you maybe secretly take pleasure in it? Maybe that some of you are doing that and you're excusing all kinds of sin that you've never dealt with. Maybe it's sin in an immoral area of your life. Maybe it's some sin in your business or sin in dishonesty or maybe it's failure to pray or maybe it's a failure to be loving and forgiving. Maybe it's stubborn pride. Who knows what? Do you mourn over your own sin? Allow God to come and to be reconciled with him and restored and forgiven again? Think of all the human suffering and death that's been caused in the world through sin. God wants us to look realistically at all of this suffering and death and feel the pain and the sorrow that, that he feels. He wants us to mourn over uh, all the injustice and the hurt and the alienation that's in the world, the spiritual darkness. He wants us to mourn over the fact that there are so many people in this world, people he has created for his glory, who refuse to worship and honor him. He wants us to mourn over the fact that people who reject his grace through Jesus Christ will suffer eternal loss. Do we mourn over that? People in our families who are hell-bent on going there? Eternal separation from him? God takes no delight in punishing unrepentant, hardened sinners. It breaks his heart to do that. And he wants us to have broken hearts as well. So maybe we should mourn more over the fact that we don't mourn more. We easily become like the proverbial frog boiling in our own kettle when it comes to mourning over our own sin. Maybe we don't mourn anymore like we should. Don't even notice that we should. Would to God that he helped us to see what he sees. You know, I found in my own experience that one of the signs of, of growing spiritually and that God is setting me free from some sinful thought or habit is that I begin to feel bad about it. Usually, I first find out from reading the scriptures or through the conviction of the Holy Spirit or the rebuke of some Christian brother in Christ that holds me accountable that my behavior, something I've said or done, is sinful and it's brought dishonor to God. And once that's been brought to my attention, even if it's only in conscience, I begin to feel bad about it and wonder how in the world I could ever have thought or done such a thing. I certainly don't like that experience. In fact, I hate it. And I, I, I just tend to think that no one wants to go through that. But I'm learning to welcome it when it comes because it means that God is wanting to change me and wanting me to change. So don't try to escape from the experience of feeling bad over sin. Don't stop at feeling it. But let your feelings be translated into genuine, genuine life transformation because the good news is that we have a Savior who loves us and who can free us completely from sin. And when we feel the pain of our sin uh, as such that it drives us to him, then we're truly on the road towards being blessed indeed. And so tonight I would encourage each of us to pray uh, and ask God to take away any hardness of heart that we might have towards sin or hindrances that we may have to confessing it. Very often a secret love for sin is the very thing that hardens our hearts against mourning over it. And hard-heartedness 
is the enemy of all true mourning. One Puritan preacher, Thomas Watson, wrote, it's not the heinousness of sin, but the hardness of the heart that damns. Secondly, I'd urge us that when God reveals it to us, we confess our sin immediately. David wrote in Psalm 32, we read it earlier, those words, if we try to cover our sin, it won't. we can't cover it, but God can. Don't presume to procrastinate and say, well, one of these days I'm going to have to take a look at myself and, and, and really get my act together. The sooner the disease is dealt with, the sooner the comfort will come, and with it, the blessedness. But if you don't deal with it in time, it may be too late and you'll spend eternity without God. So don't put it off. Keep a short sin account with God. And then finally, the third hindrance to mourning is, is conceit or stubborn pride that says, well, I'm not that bad. In fact, I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm not a sinner like some people. Or I'm a sinner saved by grace. So that confession 5, 10 or 20 years ago, that's all that I needed. That's like a foolish doctor treating a terminal illness as if it was a cold. If Jesus Christ had to shed his blood and die on the cross for our sin, I want to tell you tonight, you're real bad and so am I. Except for the grace of God. Listen, if you think you're not bad, you're worse than everybody else. Because conceit and stubborn pride is the worst sin of all. Sin's a horrible thing for many reasons, but the greatest reason is because of what it did to the Son of God. Sin is actually a rebellious shaking of the fist at God. It's the opposite of faith, and it's an expression of unrighteousness. And all of this is in the sight of a holy God. That's why David could write, and note the very first word that he uses in Psalm 32. He says, blessed, or how joyful is he or she whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed, he says, or how joyful is the, the man or woman to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. The blessedness or the comfort doesn't come in the morning. It comes in what God does in response to it. It's a joy that comes in forgiveness. So to be comforted, as Jesus means it here, isn't a comfort or a consolation that we can bring on ourselves. It's a consolation that only he can give. And because Jesus has dealt completely with the sin over which we should mourn when he purchased our forgiveness on the cross of Calvary for all of our sin, past, present, and future, through his own shed blood. And he welcomes us to come to him for comfort when we're prepared to acknowledge it and to be sorry. A little verse in a song, it just comes to mind, with sorrow for sin doth repentance begin. It all starts. So that's what Jesus was talking about. Blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted.